0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And I'm Al Warren, of course. And joining me today, co-hosting is David North Martini. Martino. <laughs> Thanks, part- Al. He's our cocktail provider, and he serves cocktails during the show. So absolutely, absolutely. So <laughs> place mixing your mixing them right on, now. Yeah, place your order online, and he'll have it sent to you. Might be a little warm <laughs> by the time you get it, but it's the thought <laughs> that counts. That's uh, hey. So we are talking about uh, a lunatic asylum, and that's not the House of Mystery. It's actually Broadmoor, and that's a. Um, in asylum for criminals in in the uk it's been very popular some of the books i've covered true crime the uh some of my um subjects have been in broadmoor so it's um it's a great place to be um so joining us is the author of the uh, book broadmoor revealed victorian crime and the lunatic asylum is mark Stevens. thank you for be- taking the time talk to us
0: Ah, oh, my pleasure. Yes, yes. Congratulations for having me on and uh, greetings from Royal
1: Barclay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, um, so, Broadmoor reveals a- any of the royalty in there, you know, what's that? <laughs> it's
0: uh, <laughs> that. It's, it's true. Yeah, it's only a matter of time, isn't it? Uh, the people who end up in Broadmoor tend to be more likely the ones that have taken hot shots at royalty.
1: That's too bad. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> that didn't come up right. No, I mean, not <laughs> Oh, Twitter will be mad at me now. No, I mean, um, well, let's just... uh, So Broadmoor, so for people that don't know, so uh, a lot of the Americans and Canadians uh, we get listening to the show, what is Broadmoor?
0: Yeah, so um, Broadmoor is, as you've hinted at, I mean, basically a highly secure psychiatric facility uh, for patients who get referred through the criminal justice system in England and Wales. Um, But it, it... was built and opened in 1863. So it's got a long history. Um, and for many years, it was the place that you went to in, uh, in England or Wales. If you'd been up before the courts, um, accused of crime, but for reasons to do with your um, mental illness and mental capabilities, it had been decided that it was not appropriate for you to serve a prison sentence, and instead you would get hospital treatment.
1: So with Broadmoor, with then, wh- why is it the one that is... Seems to be is it the only one then that really deals with um killers, you know, people that are, that, I guess they're deemed unfit, like you know, insane, so to say. So, and so they're put in Broadmoor to be healed or fixed. Um, is it kind of the only lunatic asylum that's set up for um criminals like that? No,
0: not at all. I mean, uh. I mean, it's It's, having these sort of national ones is quite a European thing. I think if you go into North America, it tends to be done more on the the state or the province basis. Um, But in England and Wales, it was, it was the earliest. And I think um, because of that, it's become very well known. It was, it was the only place you could go to if you came through this type of referral system through to the early 20th century. Um, So although there are, there are more. I mean, there's actually, there's three special hospitals in England and Wales now. Uh, It's still the first one. Um, And so that's the one reason I think that people, um, it stirs their consciousness. And uh, and I think as well over the years, there's been an awful lot of inverted commas, notorious people in there. And so, again, it's something that the media in this country is really keen on. Um, You'll still find plenty of stories about Broadmoor in the popular press over here because it's that name that captures people's imagination because it has such a long history.
1: Well, what, what, that's really an interesting thing. What what got you into actually um, writing a book about it? Like, why why did you want to cover this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. I mean, it's not sort of the thing that you necessarily fall into, you think, would you? I mean, my interest in it really stemmed from a professional interest because the Broadmoor Hospital Archive is one of the collections I look after in my day job, which is uh, being county archivist for Berkshire. Um, and... You know, because it is such a a collection that has such resonance, not just in the UK but worldwide. We got lots of questions about it, and and you start to have to do research to answer those questions. And I found it really interesting because, to be honest, the the reality of the hospital was very different to the picture I had always had in my mind through the media in the UK. Um, I found it a much more complex story, much more nuanced than I, maybe I was expecting, and because of that I, I decided actually that I was really interested in it, and because people were always asking questions about it, it was fairly straightforward to, to find a bit of time to write about it, and and gradually that sort of initial writing, um, which was really just sort of like different articles about particular patients, it grew and grew um, until I wanted to put a book together, I mean, I felt like a book certainly was was easy. Um, I think many books would be very easy because the nature of the place is such that you just get all types of humanity in there it 's very, very unique in terms of a Victorian institution in England because the nature of its referrals come from uh, such a place that you get the whole of society included, so you do get aristocrats in there you do get high-ranking officers in the armed uh, forces in there but alongside you know, agricultural labourers and, and rank-and-file um, people who served in the forces so it lends itself to um, being thought of almost like um, an English village you know, it's got all that range of social life going on within it and, and so it's fascinating as a result of that you basically have all of Victorian society reflected in a microcosm in this one place and they serve tea <laughs> yeah, they do serve tea, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, if you didn't serve tea in this country, you probably wouldn't get out somewhere alive. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so they served tea, and right from the start, they served tea, absolutely, and insisted on, I expect. What do you, Or you'll get killed. What do you think
1: that um, the biggest surprise was for you? Like, when you, when you started putting together the stories and, and the book, was there anything that you came across that you certainly didn't expect
0: yeah definitely I mean mean, my my impression of Victorian asylums um, was very much that was sort of like well I suppose from things like the horror genre um, and also from um, popular fiction and popular TV programmes as well I thought it was just some sort of dreadful place where just awful things happen Um, and actually the reverse is true in the Victorian period the Victorian period um, in Europe certainly is a very enlightened in terms of looking after people with mental illness, um, and they try and treat them as well as they can. All the sort of negative things we have around asylums and these sort of hospitals comes actually from the 20th century rather than the 19th. So I suppose I felt, I mean, I hesitate to use the word evangelical about it, but I suppose I felt that I I discovered something that I wasn't aware of. And probably a lot of other people um, shared my beliefs as well. And I felt actually that this was something I wanted to tell people was that these places have been built really with a very optimistic slant. You know, they've been built with hope. They've been built with a feeling that they would be able to rehabilitate a lot of the patients and they'd be able to rejoin society. Uh, none of this proved to be true, but that didn't stop them at the time building them in these optimistic ways. Um, and it just seemed a really potentially positive story to tell rather than maybe the negative story of Broadmoor that tended to be the one that people had
1: well, it's it's kind of housed some of the most um, notorious um, of the criminal the killers in in the history of UK. So I think that's and that's what people tend to gravitate towards, especially lately with two crime that's so popular, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think you know there is a fascination, isn't there, for for the. I suppose it's not necessarily the people, but it's the sorts of things that they've done. Um, and these things that um, for most of us we find just beyond our comprehension that somebody might might do something i think you know the very typical broadmoor patient is somebody who's killed a member of their own family um so for most of us that's just something beyond our comprehension and then as you as you've hinted at as well you find some of these very rare cases where people have attacked um strangers um and i think they I think they really hit the fear button, don't they, for people, you know, this idea that you could just be minding your own business and then suddenly fall foul of some some person who thinks nothing of doing something dreadful to you, um, but who doesn't understand what they're doing as well. So it's all these, all these sort of different things are caught up around somewhere like Broadmoor that make it difficult to fathom, and I think that's where the fascination comes from.
1: I think a lot of people think, too, right? I, I, you know, you get this a lot where people... Um, they get put in an insane asylum and they've killed a lot of people or they've done something, you know, just terrible. And a lot of people just don't, what happens to a person uh, that's in Broadmoor? I think a lot of the general society probably thinks it's not really a punishment. They're getting off easy. Um, Is that true?
0: I guess you might think, that, but I mean, I have to say, having visited it many, many times, um, it, the, the thing that I suppose those of us who are rational, I count myself as being rational, those of us who are rational share, um, is that we're all quite predictable in the way that we do things. And, and Broadmoor patients aren't like that. So, I'm, I mean, the, sort of the, the atmosphere around the place is always one where you're never quite sure what might happen. You know, it's just the nature of the people who are in there. Um, and it's not like you're, you're free. I mean, uh, these days, Broadmoor is what's called a high-secure facility. Um, you'll probably stay there for six to eight years, the idea being that they should sort out some sort of treatment regime for you. And then you'd go on to a medium secure facility and gradually sort of take all these steps potentially of going back into society. But, you know, equally some patients are probably never likely to leave because their mental illness will never quite be organised in such a way that it can make them safe. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a place of, of attempting to provide recovery and rehabilitation there's no doubt about it you know it's it's if you go there the staff have a very positive vibe about them, and they're trying to do the best by the patients and they're trying and to give them all the tools they can to bring them back into society but at the same time of course you know a lot of these people have conditions which make life very very difficult for them to ever try and manage. So, you know, is that preferable to being in jail? I don't know. I mean, if you go back into the Victorian period, you do find the odd sort of old lag, you know, criminals who'd obviously spent donkey's years in jail um, who attempted to faint mentally on this and end up um, getting transferred to Broadmoor, there's not many of them, but there's one or two, um, and they all moan about it once they're there because prison had certainty. You know, everybody knew where they were in prison. They had a routine. They had different personality types they could all understand, and it's just not like that somewhere like Broadmoor. It's it's a different place. Um, I, I I don't think I would choose to go there myself.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So I, but I know that um, one of the prisoners I was was studying and did a little uh, book for was um, Robert Maudsley, right, the uh, Hannibal the Cannibal, as they call him. Um, it, and it seemed like he really enjoyed his um, Broadmoor, and in fact he tried to get back in there so he would stage almost some a killing that he had done to make it look like he was eating brains so that they would consider him insane. It didn't work for him, but... Um, so I just, I, so I do get the impression that people like it better. Maybe, uh, I'm not sure why.
0: I suppose, I mean, if you used to be, I mean, because I can't remember how long he was in there. Was it seven or eight years? Something I mean, like uh, that, yeah. I mean, some, people People like him are also very, the traditionally, these are always the hardest patients to manage because um, they're the people who these days you tend to say would have a disordered personality. If you go back to the Victorian period, they were called being morally defective. They basically they behaved in a way that wasn't wasn't normal, and it didn't conform to society's expectations. And in the middle period, they were called psychopaths. And um, and it's that sort of person is always a really big challenge for people trying to treat mental illness because it's, uh, as we stand at the moment, it's not something that is treatable. You know, it's a behavioural disorder rather than a mental health disorder. And so I'm sure if you talk to anybody who worked at the hospital from the Victorian period right through to now, they would tell you that that sort of patient is always the most challenging. Certainly when I go and read through the notes, it's always the moral defective, later psychopaths who are the ones who are causing trouble everywhere. Um, Because, as I say, it's, it's a sort of different type of condition There's long been a debate in Broadmoor about whether they should house these people at all, because really they're not appropriate for the sorts of treatments that are being offered there. But I think to some extent society expects them to be in a hospital because they can't conform to actually existing in prison and being kept safe. They're they're a very small subset of the Broadmoor population, but probably the most challenging people to deal with.
1: So when, they, when, when someone gets put in Broadmoor, criminally insane, right, um, are they forced to or do they have to t- get treatment for whatever they consider their problem to be?
0: Well, okay, so the, yeah, the way it works these days is that um, uh, the law in, in the UK is based around something called diminished responsibility. Now, diminished responsibility takes in all sorts of different things, but one of them is, is mental illness. Uh, if you go back in time, there was something called the McNaughton Rules. I think some of the U.S. states still use McNaughton Rules, uh, which is based on a case from the 1840s. Um, the idea being that um, basically somebody is unable to reason right from wrong, and so they don't understand the nature or the quality of the act that they do. That's the, the, the legal phrasing for it. So it's really it's somebody who's unaware of the consequences of their actions. And, uh, and so you will get a hospital order. Hospital orders have different names over time, but these days, basically, it is an order for treatment, um, usually with indefinite detention period attached to it. So you will go into Broadmoor and be assessed for treatment. Now, I mean, they will have patients these days, as they've always had, who probably won't want to cooperate for treatment in which case you're just staying there, aren't you? Um, your incentive to be treated is that you, um, if you manage to get yourself sorted out and you can stabilize your mental health condition, you will gradually make it to a medium secure facility and indeed then low security and be back into the community in due course. So it's you know it's still your choice to a certain extent. Um, if you choose that you wish to stay in a secure um, hospital environment forever, then that would be your choice. Um, for a lot of patients, obviously, they're not always capable of exercising that choice when they first come in. And so the first job of the hospital is to assess them and see what it can do immediately to try and stabilise their mental health condition. I mean, you have these days, you have all sorts of things, open you. you know, there's a whole range of pharmaceuticals people can offer and um, talking therapies as well. It's... The position for treating people with mental health disorders is probably, um, there's probably a much broader range of equipment available to doctors now than there has been at, at any time before.
1: Do you think, it's, is it quite violent in that place?
0: There are bits of the hospital where I haven't been and I wouldn't expect to go because it wouldn't be safe for me to go there. Um, as a visitor, you will tend to see the patients who are, um, are who are in recovery and who are making that ready to make the next stage on their journey Um, there are some patients who are very very difficult to manage indeed you know almost unmanageable but they but a very very small number Um, most people will engage most people will gradually make their way through the different stages of the hospital and be discharged um, because that's the purpose of it you know the idea of Broadmoor is to be a hospital and to treat people and to discharge patients as any other hospital would be so the staff will definitely see it as a failure if there's somebody they can't treat because their job is to treat them.
1: Hmm. So, So, who were some of the uh, most exciting ones <laughs> or ones that you actually included in the book? Some of the prisoners or yeah. people that were in there?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the, books, the book's very much based on the Victorian period, and that's because, um, as you might imagine, there's sort of patient confidentiality in place for an awful lot of the archive. So, we do have a, a, a Couple of attempted regicides in there, uh, which is uh, would be royal assassins. Uh, There's a chap called Edward Oxford. Um, he was a he was um, eighteen actually, a very young lad, and he shot um, uh, just blank rounds with powder at a very heavily pregnant Queen Victoria in eighteen forty. As you might imagine, yeah, massive sort of outcry about that. Um, He was rehabilitated, I mean he was, he's an interesting sort of case Oxford in terms of, if you think about the modern era and how people worry about kids being influenced by computer games or, um, you know, um, horror videos and things like that, Um, what Oxford did was in the 1840s you could read Penny Dreadfuls, you know, the old sort of um, uh, books full of murders and things, and and he got terribly influenced by all this, He, he set up his own secret society, you know, he's a bit of a fantasist really. Um, so I think shooting at the Queen for him was a way of drawing attention to himself. But of course, you know, he just, just ended up um, drawing so much attention to himself that he got put in secure accommodation for 27 years. But he was quite a poster boy um, for Broadmoor because he was discharged, went to Australia, uh, and became a, an upstanding member of society. Got married, became a journalist, and uh, a churchwarden of his local church.
1: Well, he was probably influenced by um, David's book, you know. <laughs> And uh, horror and probably, probably horror. made him go, yeah, he's fantasist and, Well, that's, um,
0: wow. Well, that's and, true. Uh, I mean, you must, yeah, I'm sure you must get people who worry about this sort of thing. And, you know, and it's it's always been like, uh, that's the thing. You know, if you ever hear sort of people moaning on the news about, you know, the influence of um, things like ground theft auto on teenagers today, well, you know, I mean, this sort of thing's been around forever. There's always been things to influence people. Most people don't respond to it, of course.
1: We may have the old person. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and it's just determining what makes, what is it about a person that actually does something? And I get that in a lot of the true crime books. You know, there are murderers or there are people that do bad things, and some of them had terrible young lives, but there's plenty of people I even know that have had just as bad a life or just as bad a start, but they've turned out really well, so to speak. So um, it's just really hard to figure out what makes a person go off like that
0: yeah i mean and, and they've all and you know if you go back to, again through the brawler because you'll find they've always tried to work out what what the triggers were if they could you know i mean if you were a victorian psychiatrist um, then you were obliged to try and assign a cause of mental illness to your patients but if you look through the brawler annual repu- reports or indeed the annual reports for any public asylum in the UK most of the time they just don't know You know, they don't write it down Um, and I mean that's I think just to sort of touch on what you were saying there um, earlier on as well this idea that sort of people of similar experiences end up doing uh, living life differently is of course you know where um, the early behavioural psychology failed as well you know attempted to predict how things would turn out for people but of course as you say you know you can have two people share exactly the same experience and yet you know, turn out very differently. Very, very hard to work these sorts of things out. You get to, I mean, it's a big thing, isn't it, trying to predict who's likely um, to become offenders because, you know, if you could intervene earlier in these people's lives, you could probably spare an awful lot of pain but also an awful lot of taxpayers' money as well.
1: Well, Broadmoor has a um, history with uh, Jack the Ripper uh, as well, doesn't it, and uh, could you speak to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's some, uh, in, within Broadmoor, there have been two candidates for being Jack the Ripper. I have to say, I don't think I even are, but, you know, the Ripper, there's a whole cottage industry round around the Ripper. So uh, good yeah. luck to him. is what I feel. So there's a, there's a part called um, uh, Thomas Cutbush, uh, slightly unfortunate name, really. Um, and he was, <laughs> was uh, I just bet you catch up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Cutbush. Uh, <laughs> he was uh, he was um, uh, admitted to Broadmoor in the early eighteen nineties, so a little time after the Ripper murders. Um, he, he he slashed uh, two young women, although not I mean, you know, they're any assaults bad, isn't it? But they weren't sort of life threatening injuries; they were more superficial than that. Um, so he was he was locked up, and he was generally, I mean, he was quite a sort of an aggressive soul in Broadmoor, Cutbush. Um, yeah, and, and and you know difficult to manage, light breaking windows, that sort of thing. But I just don't think he quite fits the mode of the Ripper, you know. I mean, but why would why would somebody who sort of progressed the way the Ripper progressed, with sort of more and more savage murders, then end up just end up giving people a, a sort of light light knifing a few years <laughs> later? Doesn't quite tally. And um, the other one is a chap called James Kelly, I and mean, James Kelly. Uh, killed his wife uh, with a penknife, and he was uh, inside Broadmoor for five years, but then escaped in 1888, very shortly before when the Ripper murders were, were committed. Um, and Kelly, uh, Kelly sort of he had a fascinating life, really. He basically wanted the globe, uh, carrying on as, a career as an upholsterer, which was his trade. Uh, he made contact with Broadmoor from the British Consul's residence in New Leeds in 1896, uh, when he obviously was down on his luck and he asked whether he could be sent back. Would he quite like to go back home to Cornwall, please? Um, but uh, and they actually put, oh, put him on a boat to Liverpool and telegrammed Cornwall to say when it was turning up, but it made very good time across the Atlantic uh, and it got there early. And so um, when Kelly arrived early and found nobody there to meet him, he just uh, went his way again um, before finally turning back up at Cornwall again in 1927 when he was about 70 odd. Um, disabled, deaf, unable to work anymore, and so he came back to the one place he thought could be guaranteed to give him food and shelter. Um, The British Home Office was not very keen on him being let in, but the Baltimore doctors argued that their duty of care to the patient was never extinguished, and so they did let him in, and he spent the last few years of his life in the hospital again. So he was at large from 1888 through to 1927, um, but again, he doesn't really fit, I don't think, the, the Ripper personality. I mean, he was somebody who attacked uh, one person, his wife, um, he, because he was having delusions that she was being unfaithful to him. She wasn't, but you know, he was delusional about it. Um, and otherwise, when he was in the hospital, he showed no signs of violence at all in any direction. Um, the fact that he seems to have uh, carried on a successful career on, across different continents for many years and then come back to Baltimore when he felt unable to work also show, seems to imply it's sort of somebody who just got on with his life after he escaped. So, I mean, the, the advantage for Kelly is you can't pin him down during that period when the Ripper murders were, com- were committed. But he, to my mind, he doesn't quite fit the image of what the Ripper killer probably was like.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, kind of, it's one of those things we'll never solve, right? But, um, yeah. yeah, you hear so many stories. Um, and, and now, I noticed also that William Chester Minor, so was he put in um, Broadmoor?
0: Yeah, William Chester Minor was there for 40-odd years. Um, so he spent, well, actually, it must have been the greatest part of his adult life in Broadmoor, thinking about it. he I mean, he's a, a Massachusetts lad, yeah. so... Uh, I mean, he was, again, got a sort of blow-trotting background. So he was born in Sri Lanka um, because his parents were American missionaries out there. But then he um, he came back, they came back to the East Coast and uh, he uh, studied to be a surgeon at Yale. Um, Very, very well off background, the Minor family. He started to suffer delusions of, of persecution when he was in the U.S. Army, fought in the American Civil War. And so he was sent to what was called the Government Hospital for the Insane, which is in Washington. I think it's still around. It's called, um, yeah, it's, it's called the White House now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, well, Senator the Hospital is an annex then. Um, and uh, <laughs> so Miner was there for a few years before he was discharged from the Army. And then I think once he was discharged from the Army, basically, he couldn't be a patient anymore he wasn't a government employee. Um, and the family uh basically said said well look you know you've got time on your hands now why don't you go off to europe go on the grand tour which is what you know um uh, well educated and rich people did during the victorian age which was going across all the sort of classical sites of europe um but the first thing he did was he, he took a steamer over to london so that was his first port of call and uh I mean, he had sexual delusions, Minor. so he believed that every night he was assaulted. Um, I, I, you know, reading between the lines, Miner obviously struggled with his sexuality for many years, I think, and he probably struggled with it while he was in the army, he probably struggled with it because of his religious background, um, and, he, and he obviously was dealing with huge guilt about the feelings, whatever feelings he was having. So he, he believed that every night he was being forced to take part in, in sinful sexual acts, And uh, that various sort of phantom accusers were were coming along and and forcing him to do these things. And one night while he was in a hotel in London, he woke up and saw what he thought was one of these accusers at the end of his bed. um, Pursued the phantom figure out into the street and then managed to conflate it with a a real man, a chap who was uh, called George Merritt, who was walking to work at a brewery. And poor old Merritt was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, because uh, Minor shouted at him. And then when Merritt started running away, Minor ran after him uh, and caught up with him just before a Waterloo Bridge in London. Um, and thereupon, Miner pulled a pistol, which he'd managed to smuggle illegally into the country and shot shot poor old Merritt dead. So, I mean, it was mistaken identity in the sense that, obviously, Merritt was not the phantom creature that Minor thought he was. Um, but... You know, Minor um, uh, were pitched up for trial in London um, and the defence argued very strongly that it was because of Minor's delusions that he had shot Merritt. And for that reason, rather than be hanged, he should be given a hospital order instead. So 40 years at Broadmoor, um, in a sort of bizarre upper class um, way of living, Minor had um, uh, not just a massive personal allowance and Broadmoor uh, Broadmoor patients in the Victorian era were allowed to. Buy whatever goods they wanted in to supplement their life. So, you you look through minors' personal papers, you'll find him buying pheasants and champagne and all sorts of things. Um, But also, he was able to employ other patients as his personal servants and pay them a wage. Um, And because he amassed a a massive library of books, uh, they gave him two rooms. So, he had a a bedroom and he had a day room for his books. And it's his books, of course, that are the source of his um, subsequent fame because he scoured through them finding examples of word use which he then sent in to the editors of the oxford english dictionary to help them compile their majestic new work. so i mean it's 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 fascinating really and it's quite interesting to see the thing about miner is that um you can see the difference between victorian medicine and today today miner would probably be um uh, so full of chemicals that actually he wouldn't be interested in reading his books i'm afraid Um, but in the victorian age uh, one of the, the things they were very keen on was keeping patients occupied. Because if you kept patients occupied, the brain would be distracted from its unhealthy thoughts. So actually, setting Minor to work, scouring his books, for examples, of word use, was a really good example of Victorian mental health therapy in action. So he was massively encouraged to do this, and to great success.
1: Hmm. Hey, didn't he, he cut his own penis off, didn't he, or something? <laughs>
0: Yes, that's also true. You can't deny that. Yep, I've, uh, I've seen the notes. I can, I can confirm it.
1: <laughs> did they have it in the box? Bar- no, I'm
0: just... No, that, that, no the, the organ itself has not survived in the archive. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was... I mean, he was he was 68 when he did that. He was Ooh. 68. Which it's sort of... You'd hope that you wouldn't be into that sort of mutilation by that age, wouldn't you? But... I mean, that is just evidence of the fact that these delusions absolutely followed him through his whole life. And it's it's quite sad, actually. When you read Miner's notes, he had a routine. So every night he pushed the desk across his room because he thought pushing the desk in front of the door would stop people getting in to force him to take part in sexual acts. And then he would call out to the attendants, the nurses outside, you know, keep watch, stop people getting in. But neither of those things were ever going to happen. So I think that... I think the penis-cutting incident comes after um, quite a sweet, a sweet quote in Miner's Notes, where he says that every night he's being forced out of his cell uh, to fornicate with men and women from Reading to Land's End. Uh, that will mean more to your UK, uh, any UK listeners than it will to you, but <laughs> I live in Reading. Land's End is about 300 miles away. So every night, poor old Miner was indulging in 300 miles worth of wild sex. <laughs> but, it's probably no wonder he took matters into his own hands. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, he,
1: uh, but he must have really hated himself for the, the whatever his the sexual fantasies were. I guess. To.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And 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 you do you get a sense of a man never at rest. As I say, I, I, I find my yeah, you know, my story is a sad one. There's no doubt about it. He, it, you know, for for forty odd years until he died, he was never free of these things, and I think. Mm-hmm. I think every day for him must have been turmoil. So I think actually the fact that he managed to produce anything during this time is, is incredible. Yeah. That might have been his escape, right? The, the books, the, the writing, the
1: reading. Um, it might have been yeah, something. I think,
0: yeah. I uh, think that was, uh, you know, it, it, it's very much proof of the fact that if you keep the brain busy, then you can distract it from its its unhealthy thoughts. And, of course, the moment he comes to go to bed every evening when he's not got his books anymore, that's when the unhealthy thoughts intrude and indeed take over. I understand
1: there was quite a few um, escapes. So actually people got away from prison that were locked in there?
0: In the in the early years, of course, there was an awful lot of escapes. I mean, there were two main reasons for this. There, one was that they hadn't built the boundary wall high enough. You know, you I think you you forget that, obviously, they they were doing something for the first time. Nobody built a place like this before. So initially, the boundary wall was about seven foot. And I mean, that was just nowhere near high enough. They had gradually increased it to about 15 foot. And that had a dramatic impact on the number of escapes. The other thing was the original bars on the windows in the men's side uh, were really poorly constructed. And so if you managed to secrete a stone or something like that in your room, you could hammer it break the bars and then of course you could get out through the window so that enormous cost all the windows were in so by by 1875 so that's about 12 years after the place has opened the escape attempts really tail off um, you have people like kelly i mean kelly did get away he got away through uh, making a um, a dummy key in one of the prison one of the hospital workshops uh, but uh, but generally speaking, it's that sort of first decade of the hospital's life that's the golden era of escape attempts, and they they become much less ever since. I don't. I'm trying to think. I think the last person actually escaped from inside the secure perimeter of the hospital. I think was in the late fifties. So you know, you've now got to go back was over sixty years. I think since the last successful escape from the hospital um which you know just shows you how much security's improved over the decade
1: well for that I, yeah it's, it it's got to be much better now right they have you know so much more technology um but i just i just wonder so did did anybody famous get out of there that they never did catch again or
0: there are people who they never caught again um so i mean there's people who sort of disappeared into the victorian society um mostly when you get into the 20th century um they they did they have picked them up again or they know where they are um but in the victorian period there are three people who got away never to be seen again one was um um, a woman who was a a sort of a a regular thief and she was also a regular changer of her name she had loads aliases, and i suspect she just disappeared back into somewhere, some haunt that she knew and changed her name. Um, there was a chap from Glasgow whose name was David McCain, I think. Um, he, he was a violent offender. He was a rapist. He got away and was never heard from again. Um, and then the only murderer who ever escaped and never got back was a chap called William Bisgrove, who was, I don't know how old Bisgrove was when he escaped. I, I think he was in his mid-20s um but he i mean he had he, committed a fairly nasty murder he killed a young girl um in a field somewhere in in the west of england um by smashing her head in with a stone not not very nice at all um, but he he'd sort of at more he progressed so he progressed enough to the extent that he was allowed into a walking party that was outside the secure perimeter and uh and he he did his stone thing again basically one day he, he Asked an attendant to just look down at a rabbit hole, uh, smashed the attendant over the back of the head with a stone, pegged it off into the woods, and um, was never seen again. That was 1867, I think. So that was that's within the gold era of escapes, and um, and so he's the uh, he's the one murderer who got away.
1: Mm. You know, and one thing I, I so people I have to ask this because it says like you had what there was five women who actually became mothers, so gave birth. Um, were, were they allowed to have sex in there? Or was that, did they have men and women together? Or how did that work?
0: No, indeed, no. So um, the women, the women who, who've all give, who've given birth, um, and there have been a number over the, the decades, and they were all pregnant when they were admitted. So um, the question then became really, to what extent were they allowed to look after their children? And... Every child that was born in Broadmoor ended up being taken away. Um, But if the mothers were were in recovery, if they were felt safe to be looking after their children, then they were allowed to nurse them for a few months. Um, If they were not felt to be safe with their children, then their children would be removed from them at birth and given to somebody else to look after. And uh, I mean, it was a decision that they definitely made on a case by case basis. Uh, Because so many of the women were inside Baltimore for murdering their own children. So you had to be really certain that that wasn't going to happen again if you were going to let a mother nurse her child. There was, I mean, for practically the whole of the hospital's existence, the men and the women were completely separate. Um, So there were, in the Victorian period, they would see each other only at chapel. And then, to be honest, only the women would really see the men because the women... Sort of had a, a, a gallery where they were allowed into behind the men. So at chapel service you had both sexes in the same space but not actually in contact otherwise they never saw each other at all when you go into the early 20th century you start to get um, patients allowed to mix at things like dances and other social occasions occasionally but there's there's nothing there's nothing by which you might understand these sort of conjugal rights in Broadmoor um, <laughs> so if you're thinking that that might be an attraction
1: you're sadly mistaken <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, well, you know that make me visit um, wow so that's that's pretty interesting um, so when you wrote the book did you have something in mind that you wanted people to take away from the book like was there I something think, different uh,
0: yeah when I was writing the book I definitely wanted to try and demystify the place and I wanted to I wanted to show it for being, to be honest, pretty much like anywhere else. Um, I, I, it is exceptional. There's no doubt about it. It's an exceptional place. And uh, and the sorts of, particularly the sorts of reasons why people end up in there are really unusual. You know, I, I mean, the, the dreadful things that people can do to each other um, because they don't know what they're doing to each other. Mercifully, it's rare. Um, but I suppose the fact that these people are just the same as anybody else, is a fascination. Um, And I wanted to try and get that across. I wanted to try and get across a story of people beyond one appearance in court or one sentence in a newspaper and really get a feel for how the hospital joins the rest of Victorian society. You know, I mean, Broadmoor is not a space that is completely separate from the rest of what goes on in England and Wales. Broadmoor's a part of what goes on in the rest of the country, which is true of any mental health hospital. And I think that, for me, that was the interesting thing, was to try and talk about it as if it was something that was part of us and that obviously part of us lives in it as well, through our fascination with it. Um, And try and reason with that, you know, try and sort of get a handle on the fact that somehow we have to acknowledge this place's existence um, and decide how we feel about it and how we want to respond to it, because it's not going anywhere. The fact that it's survived for 150 years tends to suggest it's been a success. Um, and I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. How did,
1: how I was just thinking, so how do they handle COVID in a place like that? Because it, it must be very difficult.
0: Oh, I, I mean, they've had to keep going, obviously. I mean, I think, it, it, again, it's a hospital, so it's no different from any other hospital, and uh, and they will have protocols for everything that they do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I did actually catch up with the current head of it the other week and and i think it's been hard because they've tried to carry on doing all the things they would normally do but i mean as, as all of us have found over the last year that even if you're allowed to do things they all seem to take so much longer they're so much more complicated than they were in this pre-pandemic era Um, You know, life's slow and life sort of seems full of barriers at the moment, doesn't it? And I don't think it's any different there. They'll have had impacts on visitors as well. You know, I mean, obviously um, patients do have visitors, but that will have been severely curtailed over the last year. I would imagine it's felt, it's felt odd. Like working anywhere has felt odd.
1: Yeah. I would just imagine in an enclosed society like that, or like just like a prison, that if if it gets into, the prison or into the hospital it would be a terrible thing to control that's
0: you know yeah i'm sure i mean i, I don't know what it's been like um, in north america but certainly over here the prison system there have been a number of outbreaks in prisons i think what obviously broadmore is as it's a hospital i think it probably benefits from the fact that the nurses are used to doing things like having clean regimes you know and making sure that everything's sterile um, which you wouldn't get in a prison environment. And I suspect that's why prisons have been so badly affected. They're not really, prisons aren't really built, are they, for providing health care? Um, yeah, that's why places like Bournemouth came into being as an alternative for that. So, so yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, when you, you can see over here that enclosed spaces have been a problem. Um, I think at Broadmoor, as I say, because they're used to dealing with that medical side of things, it's probably made it a bit easier. Certainly, as I say, I called up a couple of weeks ago. I'm not aware they've had any major problems there.
1: Wow. Uh, So do you have a website of your own that uh, people can come find you at, or do you have a a social media set up to promote yourself or the
0: book? Um, I, I am on Twitter, though I'm really, really bad at using it, but the handle is at Markoria, M-A-R-K-O-R-I-A. Uh, the best way to get contact with me uh, if I'm not responding to Twitter posts is actually through the Barcher Record Office website, because uh, that's my day job, and any message that comes through to the record office is not only monitored at least five days of the week, but also they'll know where to find me.
1: Mm. We'll, have, uh, we'll also have the pen and sword uh... Uh, website up on ours, so people can find yes, you yes, yes, and stuff like that and stuff like that. How long did it take you to do um, this book
0: the book the book sort of it, it came into being I think from a series of sort of smaller articles, and i 'm trying to think back to it now i reckon, I reckoned that i I had these sort of smaller pieces and I put them together, and then I started making sure that they linked to each other and expanding them a bit, and that probably took. I don't know eight or nine months, probably. was mm-hmm. a fairly intensive period of working um, because obviously, you know, you're, you're trying to work it around your job. Um, but I think, I mean, I don't know, I, you know, I don't know what how you two feel about writing, but sometimes you just get in the zone about things. And I think when I was piecing together the articles um, and making it into a book about Broadmoor. I just felt very much in the zone, you know, because I knew my topic by then. I mean, it, it wasn't like I was having to stop every minute to go and do a bit more research, which, which you know, certainly sometimes with, when I'm writing other things, I find, um, it was really easy to just go straight through and plough through it pretty much from beginning to end. Yeah. What was your yeah. research like? Well, it was very intensive in terms of, um, of trying to gauge material. So, so what, I, what I would typically do there, um, is that... Uh, because I'm lucky, I've got access to all the archives, so you know, I will transcribe things. And I find transcribing things, I find it really useful because it, it forces me to think about what I'm reading. So as well as reading through it, if I'm writing it down, it sort of goes into the consciousness a bit more. And then once I've got the transcriptions of all the bits and pieces from the archives that I'm interested in, I'll go and see what else I might need to um, augment that. Um, things like newspaper reports, census returns, other bits and pieces to get information about the people that I, I want to describe. Um, and then and then start writing something with, with something like Bournemouth Revealed. It was very very linear narrative, really. And so I'm, I'm dealing with people from the first time we you know about them through to the end of their lives or when they disappear off, off the historical record. Um, so it's simply writing a linear structure. I find, and I don't think I'm a very effective and economic author about this, what I tend to find is I tend to do a first draft, um, which is, is quite often quite compact, and then I go back to it and I start adding in information. And I may well do that three or four times, so every time it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's only after that that I'll actually start editing it down again. And so I suspect that's probably not the most efficient way of doing it, but, you know, I think one of the things about writing is that we all have a natural way of doing it, don't we? Trying to change that natural way. I suppose it's like golfers trying to adjust their swings. You know, you could probably spend years doing it, and even then it might not be quite right.
1: Mm. And then, so how do you choose which stories you're going to put? Like, which, which people you're going to use in the book?
0: With Brawl More Revealed, it was very much based on, on the people I thought people would expect to hear about. So uh, people like Richard Dadd, who was a very celebrated Victorian artist, um, people like Edward Oxford, who shot Queen Victoria, people like William Chester Minor, because obviously of um, Simon Winchester's book. Um, so there were people who I felt I should write about. And then what I, what I decided to do as well was I decided to try and tell some stories that were sort of linked to that, to give a more rounded picture. So um, after um, talking about William Chester Minor. I I wrote a whole series of of stories based on other immigrants, so other people from different nationalities who'd ended up in the hospital, Um, to really try and put Minor into perspective, because he's a fairly unusual case with immigrants. I mean, he was terribly well off. Most of the immigrants who end up in Broadmoor are are dirt poor, you know, quite often sailors as well from different parts of the world. who've just pitched up in the London docks and ended up in the court system there. Um, Similarly with um, uh, the women patients, I... I knew I needed to write about a lady called Christiana Edmonds. Um, she's um, the most celebrated Victorian female patient uh, because she was she was somebody with a disordered personality. who went around poisoning people in an attempt to try and excuse an earlier poisoning that she'd done of the wife of the man that she wanted to have an affair with. Very complicated world, Christiana's. Um, and I thought actually doing doing a selection of, of women who were not Christiana would again make her stand out being exceptional she's christiana is very unusual in being somebody who uh, is um, committing a crime on strangers with on the female side she's almost unique in terms of that um, because virtually all the women who were in broadmoor in the victorian period were those who had killed their own children so i felt doing a series of pieces about that would be something that ought to be done and then it becomes a sort of arbitrary way about how to do that. And I thought that doing it in terms of you women know, who were pregnant when they've been admitted to the asylum would be interesting because there was a positive act to that. Um, you know, I mean, there, there was new life coming out of sometimes very tragic circumstances. And I thought that would be be a nice balance. So, so it was very much um, based on sort of what I felt people would expect to hear about with me then weaving in some of these things which i found interesting which put these people in context i mean i have to say you know there's i i think there's about two thousand victorian patients and you could write a book about any of them i mean they're all absolutely fascinating
1: hmm. so do you plan on doing another or are you going to continue kind of doing this thing what do you think
0: for, the, for about the last ten years, it feels like I've had three other Broadmoor books on the go, and not enough time to write any. Of them. But they're all they're all largely researched, and I would very much like to do them. Um, and they, what, what I would like to do is I'd like to do two that are based on on families, um, and try and put patients into the wider family unit because I think you can just find out so much more about Victorian Britain through doing that. And I'd like to do a Broadmoor Origins story. That sounds very, very sort of uh, fashionable, doesn't it? And I think a (laughs) Broadmoor Origins story based on the case of James Hadfield, who was um, a chap who shot at George III. Um, But it's Hadfield, really, who creates the situation whereby Broadmoor comes into existence. Although he was never there, uh, 60 years after after Hadfield's offence, more is created, and it's very much due to his actions, uh, shooting at George III in the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane in 1800. So there you go. That's the grand plans, and I just have to live long enough to write all.
1: <laughs> Well, you're young enough; you have no problem, you know. Jeez. Um, well, it's it's certainly been a pleasure. It's certainly an interesting uh, subject, and uh, could just talk about it forever. Um, Pretty amazing. So uh, have, have you, is this the first book you've had published or have you done other books before?
0: Broadmoor of it was the first one. And then I did um, Life in the Victorian Asylum for Pen and Sword, which is like a companion book, really. Um, so I wrote that. I wrote that because I wanted to try and write a how to do um, a programme if you were going to film a Victorian asylum, what you would need to do. I'll tell you why. It's because at the time... Schoolboy Reveal was being optioned by Simon Cow no less, and there was um, <laughs> there was discussion about making it into an TV series. So I thought, well, if they're going to do this, uh, I, I, you know, I want to try and give them the whole picture so they can do it properly. Um, so that, that book came out of that. But then, that, then that's been it. So I mean, I haven't published anything since then. Um, though, as I say, there's plenty in the pipeline.
1: How do you, so, uh, how do you feel now that you've got done this book and you've published it? What do you think you would do differently? Have you, have you given that any thought?
0: I learned an awful lot about writing. With Broughmore Revealed and, and Life and the Victorian Asylum as well, I, I learned a huge amount about writing. So Broughmore Revealed, I, I think I learned how to create a linear narrative. And I can remember when I was writing the second book, uh, Life and the Victorian Asylum, I did it in two parts. So I wanted to do a, a sort of an experimental first part, which was actually in a different voice. I'm not sure that it always succeeded, but I wanted to. I wanted to try writing it um, uh, in the present tense and and in the second person. Um, so I had a go at that. But then I I did a sort of commentary on that as the part two of that book, which was a linear narrative based on um, Victorian uh, mental asylums and and, uh, and the local asylum network. Um, and I felt by the time I'd done that, that commentary bit, I'd really nailed linear writing, and so. So I thought that when I come to do the future books, actually, I, I will do it in a much more experimental format. Um, so going back, would I do anything different? I don't know. I think I think, I think you, you sort of, you need to write, you need to write the books they are at the time, don't you? Or else you're actually going to learn from them. Um, I'm really happy. I mean, I, I was having a look at of Field earlier today, actually, because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was published eight years ago now. I, I don't always. Um, For many months, necessarily have anything to do with it on a day-to-day basis, um, and I have to say, I've written that. I thought, actually, this is really isn't bad. <laughs> Which, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how you two feel, but actually, from an yeah. author's perspective, that's a, that's really quite rare. You know, quite wow. often you read things you've written and you hate it, don't you? Um, so right, no, yeah. I, I I feel affectionate towards it. I still feel very fond towards it.
1: No, that's good. That's a good feeling, and and yeah, that's you know, wow. Well, our hour is up. Our, our, our guest has been uh, the author of Broadmoor Revealed, um, Mark Stevens. Uh, thank you for talking with us today.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Mark. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> the mission has been completed the end by george he's got it it is the end i'll see you if you're lying to me i'll be back this has been a production of something with media